2: I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time, who knew the greatest athletes and coaches, and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on press box access. Malcolm Aram was always at the big game but he never big-timed anyone. Malcolm would stop and help any journalist in any way. I know, because he helped me many times during our careers, and I wasn't alone. Today, Malcolm is helping college students as director of the Sports Capital Journalism program at IUPUI. He's kind enough to take time away from saving the future of sports journalism to share some memorable stories from his own career as a writer. Super Bowls, World Series, Final Four, Major bowl games, Olympics. Malcolm covered all the big events and covered them for the big boys. The New York Times, Newsday, Chicago Tribune, USA Today. He reported and wrote with an eye for those who couldn't be there. He found answers to questions, and now I have some more for him. Malcolm, it's so nice to talk to you again. Welcome to Press Box Access. Malcolm, it's so nice to talk to you again. Welcome to
0: Press Box Access. Thanks, Todd. It it has been too long, but it's good to be here with you.
2: Well, it's a special show today, Malcolm. I've got my tweed jacket with the elbow patches. I've got my pipe. (laughs) That's a tobacco pipe, people.
0: I was going to say, careful on what's in the pipe. Well, it's a tobacco pipe.
2: My tweed jacket, my pipe. I'm looking very professorial. Because, you know, we've got the professor. So I'm glad one of us is. (laughs) No, no, no. You're the professor. You're the professor here. Malcolm Moran, after 30 years at newspapers, uh, about 15 years ago or so, uh, you left to uh, work in higher education, first at Penn State. And since 2013, you've been director of the Sports Capital Journalism Program at IUPUI. Uh, so you've got a lot of wisdom, perspective about the business that you were in for all those years and the future of the business that you're grooming. And they're very lucky to have you um, as a professor.
0: Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's, uh, it's very rewarding work. I mean, I thought it would be, but when you experience the sense of seeing former students after they leave the nest, and all the things they're doing, and the way they do it. I mean, the professionalism that they bring to it, it's even more rewarding than I thought it would be. Well, they're
2: certainly lucky because, I mean, for 30 years, you were working at Newsday, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, USA Today. We're talking big boys. This this was not the Hooterville Gazette.
0: No, but when when I was at Newsday, and, and I'm glad this happened because it, it created a perspective and an appreciation that that I've always carried with me. Uh, I mean, I was a part-timer there for almost two years after graduation. Like 19- in mean, 1975, 1975 or so? Well, right. I graduated in 75, and and then until March of 77, I was a part-timer. Right. And, and you know, basically, People that flip burgers were looking down on me, like in terms of compensation. <laughs> uh, but I was the happiest guy in the room because I knew, I mean, Newsday was at least a top five section in the country there, and and maybe top one or two. And and I knew just because of the the people that were surrounding me and just the kindness they showed to me. I mean, they didn't talk to me like I was the part-time 21-year-old. They talked to me like I was a peer, which I was not in terms of professional achievement. And I can remember one day walking into the office uh, just to pick up a check and you know note to students, you know, Google the, the <laughs> act of picking up a check. But no, but seriously, I came into the office, and here's Bill Knack and Dan Locke, who unfortunately are no longer with us, and they are in this animated conversation about a semicolon. <laughs> one of them was writing a story and had the other one come over. And they are going back and forth about whether there should be a semicolon in a particular place and why or why not. So, who won? Who won and the there, argument? You know, I don't remember because it went on for so long, <laughs> and and it, and it, it was good natured, but nobody was giving ground, and and I remember standing there. For feeling like I was in the front row at the U.S. Open Tennis. You know, I'm just looking back and forth as they're carrying on this. I mean, it wasn't an argument, but it was a spirited conversation. And I remember thinking at that moment, there were people paying big money to go to the graduate school at Columbia that don't have access to this. Right. Hands-on experience. And that was what was such a gift
2: So you get hired full-time by Newsday in 1977. You're a couple years out of Fordham, where you graduated from. And you're doing a little bit of everything, right? You're doing high schools, you're doing some college, you're doing some pros. And I think you were even doing, you were even covering some of the New York Yankees of those late 70s, right? You're around the ballpark some?
0: Yes, I I would fill in on the occasional road trip. Uh, I would be an extra guy, a sidebar guy for certain home games.
2: And this is the late 70s. Uh, We're talking George Steinbrenner, the owner, Billy Martin, the manager. The Bronx Zoo. Right, the Bronx Zoo. It it was the Bronx Zoo era. Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson, all these characters. For a young sports writer who grew up in New York, what kind of indoctrination was that for you to be around the Bronx Zoo? Uh,
0: It was terrorizing, really, because... I knew like when I went when I was on a road trip when I was by myself mm-hmm. I'm competing with people on that beat that had been on the beat almost as long as I was alive mm. and every day when you would go to the ballpark you knew that there was a very good chance that today's game might become the last priority on what you're going to be reporting and writing about today or tonight. Because somebody's going
2: to do something. Somebody's going to say something. Who knows?
0: Right. Somebody's. Something's going to happen. Now, in hindsight, the thing that did make it a lot more fun than it felt at the time was the access was so good. Like, you would travel with the ball club. You would fly on the same flight, whether it was charter or commercial. You would ride the bus from the airport to the hotel or from the hotel to the ballpark. And you would hear when when Fred Stanley, nicknamed Chicken, would carry a boombox on the bus (laughs) and play Take This Job and Shove It by Johnny Paycheck. (laughs) And they're all laughing in the back of the bus. Uh, like you had access to that, right? Or or when Catfish Hunter, God rest his soul, and Lou Pinella would go back and forth relentlessly, <laughs> and and you know, which later on, when Catfish became seriously ill, and and passed away, I knew because of those experiences that when I was assigned to write about it, the first person I needed was Lou, right. Because this would hit him, as, I mean it hit a lot of people hard, but it would hit him even harder. But there was one, there was one ride, there was a rainout on the fourth of July at Fenway. And they're gonna be chartering from Boston to Dallas. They're gonna be playing the Rangers tomorrow night. And the year before, Hunter had a disastrous outing. I mean, it was like a third of an inning or two thirds of an inning, five runs, three home runs. I mean, you you watch this and you think this guy's got to be hurt. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Well, now it's a year later and things are under control. And this bus in the rain is going through Kenmore Square. And Pinella is pretending to be yelling out the window, although the windows are all closed. Basically, he's alerting the population that it's safe to come out now. (laughs) Catfish Hunter is leaving town, and we're not going to have these rockets going over Lansdowne Street out into Kenmore Square. And he is not letting go of this. And everybody on the bus is laughing. And finally, it gets quiet. And Catfish, in his understated way, said something. And I'm, for our purposes, I have to eliminate certain words here. For the for the children that may be listening, Catfish basically suggested, well, if you're playing left field, they might as well go over the fence because you're not going to know what to do with it anyway. <laughs> and so you had access to all. All those dynamics. Never rockets. Never rockets
2: going off everywhere. You had Reggie Jackson, right? So you have Reggie, and you have Billy Martin, and you have George. Just that that
0: trio. It was of the old, the ultimate combustible mix, and and I learned the hard way how combustible it was when Reggie had been coming off of a suspension, uh, a club suspension after he had been given a bunt sign the previous week and apparently was insulted that he, you know, he signed a five-year $2.93 million contract to be asked to bunt late in the game. And so when the bunt sign comes off, he continues to bunt, (laughs) which the manager did not appreciate. (laughs) And this is on top of the, you know, the ongoing tension that had been going on between those two Really, from the time Reggie arrived. Right.
2: I think there was a day, July 24th, 1978. You're at Uh, O'Hare Airport and you're.
0: Well, so what happened was I was a very late fill in for a colleague who had a family illness that he had to deal with on very short notice. So I am sent, I get a phone call at one in the morning from the slot editor saying, everything's okay, wake up. And he says, well, like, we need you to go to Chicago tomorrow. So I you, know, I, you know, like like we've all done it one time or another, you know, everything gets upended. I'm, I arrive in Chicago Saturday night, go to the pole park Sunday. Reggie is coming off of this suspension on Sunday. This is his first game back. Mm-hmm. And I remember... He, his locker was at the end of the room in the old Comiskey Park, at like one end of the rectangle. And there were a dozen roses in his locker. Some admirer had sent him a dozen roses. Wait a minute, maybe Reggie and sent them so, to himself. Well, there <laughs> is that possibility that I did not consider at the time, but you raise a good point. So Reggie is holding court before the game and is completely unremorseful. And it was basically, okay, you know, let's let's move forward and we've got a job to do. By the way, the bottom is in the process of falling out from underneath this team.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, th- these are, this is 78, so they had, they had won the pennant in 76, were swept by the Reds, Beat the Dodgers with Reggie in 77. He had the three home run game in game six in the Bronx. Now it's the next year, and the bottom is falling out as the end of July approaches. So he says what he says. Now it's getaway day. And after the game, Billy Martin is in his office and asks the writers, uh, you know, what did he say? And Jack Lang, longtime a uh, baseball writer, executive director of the BBWAA for many years, gets out his first edition story and says, well, if you want to see what he said, this is what I filed. Oh. And hands it to to Billy. Nice. And so Billy is sitting there reading these remarks, showing no remorse, and he's having his post-game beer or two. Or 12. And he's getting more and more agitated. Well, that was one case where I I did not make the bus. I had to go in a cab to O'Hare. I was going to be traveling on the flight, but I didn't go on the bus. On the bus, Billy says to either Murray Chess. I think he said it to Murray, who was you know, longtime Hall of Fame honored writer from the Times. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy says to Murray, I'm not... Essentially, I'm not finished. I've got more to say when we get to the airport. <laughs> and Henry Hecht from the Post spots this. And so they were, I believe, they were near a newsstand in the terminal. And that's when uh, Billy characterized Reggie and George on the record by saying the two of them deserve each other. One's a born liar and the other's convicted. Mm. The convicted reference being a, a reference to the fact that Steinbrenner had been suspended for being convicted for an illegal campaign contribution to the Nixon campaign. So I, I know that when I make the flight, and I know something is going on. Yeah, you just got to take your can- right? You just know it. Yes. And so we, we get to the Crown Center Hotel in Kansas City. I get to my room. I immediately start making phone calls. I I actually found out what room Billy was staying in, knocked on the door. And and I'm just saying, look, I'm new here. My my hope is I'm just trying to get caught up. I'm not trying to win a Pulitzer. I'm trying to survive. (laughs) I'm trying not to get fired. And, (laughs) And apparently the coach, he was not there because the coaches got him out of there. And so I've got nothing. Other than a very average game story that has nothing to do with the news of the day. And I remember fastening the, you know, the deadbolt mm-hmm. on the hotel room door, <laughs> thinking, like, this is like that nightmare that I presume we've all had at one time or another, where you're about to take a final exam and you have no idea what the subject matter is. Right. I remember thinking, like, I am now living that nightmare <laughs> because I know I missed something. <laughs> and so about 7 a.m. the next day, um, I get a phone call from the the editor saying, okay, what happened? And I said, well, you know, because obviously in those days you did not learn these things instantaneously. I mean, if if a situation like that had un, had evolved now... It would be tweeted in 10 seconds. Right. And I would have been able to play catch-up to some degree Sunday night. Right. So the editor told me what the Times and the Post had reported. And, And I remember later that day, I had had a very preliminary lunch conversation with an assistant editor at the time several weeks ago. I had sent them something just for the sake of sending them something. And probably more than anything else, just as a courtesy, a very kind assistant editor named Harold Clausen took me to lunch. And it was just kind of a get to know you thing. And he was extremely generous and kind to me. And so I'm holding out hope that maybe one day, you know, who knows, maybe that could work out. I remember sitting on the bed in my room at the Crown Center Hotel in Kansas City, looking out the window and thinking, I'm done. I'm done. Like, I'm lucky I have this job. But I just, I was just beaten on the biggest story, on the biggest beat in our town, and I was beaten as cleanly as you can be beaten, fair and square, and I'm done. But you weren't done, and, Malcolm, you weren't but, but I wasn't done. Well, done. and that's the bizarre thing. And part of the reason for that, and I didn't realize this until a long time later, but apparently when my name eventually came up in conversation there, Murray explained the circumstances mm-hmm. of why I didn't have it and how it worked out, both in terms of logistics and the fact that I had been thrown into that, I mean, not at the 11th hour, but you know, literally right. getting a phone call at one in the morning. And so, I mean, that, that was able to contribute to giving me a chance. And so that was July 24th that he said that. And so a little over four months later, I'm, I'm in Abe Rosenfeld's office, on the third floor of the Times, the old Times building, mm-hmm. and he's leaning forward and extending his hand and offering me a job at the Times.
2: And you weren't on. Like, you couldn't you make done. this up. 19 years at I the New York Times done. you went on to work. I mean, think about it. You took that that lesson that you learned as a young reporter, and that I, I think that probably fuels you in many ways going forward, right?
0: Yes, oh, without question. And it, it reinforced things that i'm teaching now Mm -hmm. about the importance of relationships which is something that has become so undervalued in this era era of immediacy Mm -hmm. and texting and all that i mean texting is fine as long as there's a foundation of a relationship there and the importance of earning trust why would people tell you things that are sensitive or controversial and especially if it might be embarrassing to them right. if they don't trust you. And so, yes, as difficult as that experience was, I, I couldn't begin to calculate what a great learning experience that was.
2: Well, you certainly put that learning into practice and people learned to trust you. I mean, you went on to a career that included like 40 Final Fours, 11 Super Bowls. 16 World Series, four Olympics, more than 30 major bowl games, on and on and on. And after 19 years at the Times, um, you go on to Chicago Tribune and then USA Today, you went from like being around those Yankees to there was also a stretch where you spent a lot of time around the Yankees of college football, and that's Notre Dame. What do you, rem- what do you remember about being around Lou, the character of Lou, Lou Holtz?
0: Well, I had a different perspective because when I was a part-timer at Newsday, Lou was the coach of the Jets. And every now and then, I would be sent over to Hofstra where they trained, which was maybe a mile or two from the old Newsday offices in Garden City.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and so I was around him. And and there was a game in Denver where they blew a lead and lost, and the owner had a heart attack. Really? And Lou, like, it's the day after the game, and I'm by myself with Lou because the beat writers haven't gotten back yet. And the normal availability period is such and such a time. And Newsday sends this part-timer just to cover us. <laughs> and it's me and Lou. He didn't have to talk to me. Like, I'm a 22-year-old nobody. Right. That he could easily have blown off. I'll wait until the beat writers get back. And he's basically pouring his heart out to me, blaming himself for the owner having a heart attack. Wow. And, and... So I mean that was one moment that I had access to, but still like his humor, like just all the things that became nationally famous were on display with the Jets, but nobody was paying very much attention outside of New York because the Jets weren't very good. Mm-hmm. And the, the last vestiges of that Super Bowl group, including Namath, were kind of on their last legs. And he wound up Quitting before the end of the regular season. That's right, yeah. So now he gets the Notre Dame job. And what I learned eventually, and this is this shows you the the wisdom of Roger Valdissari and the wisdom at the time in the Notre Dame leadership to to follow Roger's instincts and lead. And that was one of the first things that happened was that Lou had dinner with Roger and Father Joyce, who at the time was Father Ted Hesburgh's number two.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the way it was explained to me much later was that they, th- what they appealed to Lou was, like, all that funny stuff that you used to tell Johnny Carson, hmm why don't we just put it aside for a little while? I mean, why don't we get this thing up and running? I mean, I think essentially what I was told that he was told was that those jokes are going to be a lot funnier if you're 9-0. and Right, right. Nobody wants a clown and show he, when you're losing, right? And he listened to them. Hmm. Unlike future coaches that did not necessarily listen to similar advice, even if it was sought out. So now I'm I'm around him in this new place and it's like, what did they do to Lou? <laughs> you know, I mean, he was so muted at the very beginning. He was, I mean, you, you saw little peaks of it, but it was not the same full blast routine that we would get a little bit later on. Right. And it was a very wise strategy. And, you know, two years later, you know, they're, they're beating Miami at home, beating SC in the Coliseum and going on to win the Fiesta Bowl.
2: Is that when you started seeing more of the Lou that we all came to know?
0: Yes, yes. And, you know, the thing that should be added is that a lot of people made a lot of money off of Lou Holtz because all of a sudden, the events surrounding the game The pep rally Friday night, the rubber chicken luncheon on Friday afternoon became must viewing. Mm. And so all these hotels in in what I eventually started calling the greater Mishawaka Metroplex (laughs) started imposing two night minimums. I don't remember ever having a two night minimum for a Notre Dame football weekend before Lou Holtz was the head football coach. Mm.
2: You know, from afar, sometimes when you get a character like that, who's you know, always quips and he's funny, and you wonder almost like is he playing a character? But I think the people who knew Lou, no, they really said this guy just is actually a fun, funny guy. He's a great coach, but he, but he's just a he's he is
0: who he is that way. Well, at, at one point when and I forget the exact strategy, but there there was one phase that that came to be known as the blarney offense you know and i remember thinking to a certain degree like lou was playing the blarney offense from a pr perspective with us like you knew certain things you you had to take with a grain of salt right however there were the occasional moments when he would let you in Mm -hmm. and and one of them was after they beat west virginia And it's in the post-game press conference. And there was this long soliloquy in which he basically said, I never thought anything like this would happen to me. Hmm. And it it wasn't his after-dinner speech routine about, you know, the skinny kid from Liverpool, Ohio that grew up with the lisp and people made fun... It was a genuine admission after the fact. And then there was this long pause. And, you know, it was one of those frustrating instances where there's, it's, it's screaming for a poignant follow-up question mm-hmm. that isn't coming. And somebody asked him about next year. Which had nothing to do with this really emotional right. moment that had just taken place, like and redoing. immediately it was like it was like somebody had flipped a switch, and he said, "Well, like next year we're going to be losing all these players, <laughs> yeah. and we're not going to be very good." And 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 there was this uproarious laughter <laughs> because in that period of three to five seconds, you went from this really revealing admission to the old poor-mouthing routine because he was getting ready for next year already. He knew how to play that role
2: for certain, right? Yes.
0: (laughs) But, But, you know, having said that, and this is one of the things that I did learn from being around him, that when he would get up at the Tuesday press conference and talk about worrying about Rice, he was at a point in the week, the way he worked that he's looking at all the things that could possibly go wrong that he had to address
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it it was very possible that he saw something in a film of something that Rice did on special teams that made him say this could be a problem that could get them back in this game i think a lot of what came to be known as poor mouthing and i'm and i'm not saying that it didn't exist at all, right? But I think a certain percentage of it was rooted in truth. That that's just the way he was thinking at that part of the week. It's like he and got, that's he got when ready the press conference yeah. was. He got ready that where, way, right? Where no, and the to me the ultimate evidence of that was the the Thursday night before the Florida State game in '93, one versus two. And the next thing you know, we're all in Lou's basement, finished basement, which includes, and this really surprised me, prominent photographs of his Jets experience. Really? Which, given how it ended, I never would have, you know, and I was a big Jets kid growing up, an AFL kid and a Jets kid. And here's this huge picture of him and Namath on the sideline, when they're playing the Giants in an exhibition game at Yankee Stadium, Hmm. and a team picture. So Lou is behind the bar pouring beverages for people. Nice. And in a corner of the room, BYU is playing somebody on Thursday night. And at halftime, as you can imagine, the whole halftime segment is devoted to Notre Dame, Florida State. So now on the TV, here's the soundbite of Lou from Tuesday Mm -hmm. when he said something to the effect of Florida State is capable of scoring 50 points every time they take the field. (laughs) And there's not a word in his basement. And all these people all of a sudden turn from the Lou on the TV to the Lou pouring Chardonnay behind the bar and without any prompting, he says, I said they were capable of it. I didn't say they would do it. Yes. And yes. I thought he thinks they're going to win. Yeah, right. Like it was one of those rare moments of insight that hardly ever happens anymore where he let us into his head. And, you know, the reason I mentioned that is that That was the way he worked. On Monday or Tuesday, he's thinking of every potential disaster, which was reflected in how he talked about the game. Mm -hmm. But by Thursday night, he's thinking, like, we've got a chance at this thing. And he was right. He was right. And he was right. Because, you know, for those of us that had started the week in Tallahassee and, you know, the Florida State guys are making rock newtony jokes, (laughs) <laughs> and, and and I remember thinking to myself as I was traveling from Tallahassee to South Bend, by all appearances, Florida State's the better team. And it could be that they might just run past these guys, but they're going to get hit in the mouth at some point. And I don't know if they realize that. Yeah. I mean, that was my takeaway from being there at the start of the week. Yeah, I, like, I, What's going to happen if they get hit in the mouth? You know, like that old Mike Tyson thing? Right. Everybody has a plan until you get hit in the mouth. Right. And, and as it turned out, I mean, that's, that, was, that's became, that became part of the, the way the game played out.
2: Yeah, I actually covered that game for the Cincinnati Post, and that's my memory of the game, that Notre Dame established that, no, we're not going anywhere today. We're going to fight. Well, Lou Holtz was certainly a character um, in college football, and you were around a lot of them, covering you know more than 30 major bowl games. But there were also a lot of characters in college basketball, and I know that's such a passionate love of yours, college hoops. Um, 2019, you became the executive director of the United States Basketball Writers Association. You're enshrined in the U.S. Basketball Writers Association. Association Hall of Fame. Uh, you've received the Kurt Gowdy Print Media Award, on and on and on, Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. So you had this love for college basketball, you know, growing up and getting into the business. And then, beginning in 1979, you cover your first Final Four, quite a good one, by the way, huh? Bird Magic, not bad. Yes. And you've covered 40, I think, right?
0: 40 Final Fours? Well, well, you know, in, in the later years, it's, Serving basically as an editor, right? Okay, yeah, so you've I'm been supervising the, students. So you've been, yes. Yeah, so last Final year, fours. last spring was forty.
2: You've you saw that event blow up in the nineteen eighties and the nineties. So there were so many iconic moments back in those days. When you think about it, you know Keith Smart hitting a jumper, Lorenzo Charles, Chris Weber's timeout, Duke Kentucky, UNLV, Duke. As a reporter, when you think about all those events that you were at, what comes to mind first and why?
0: Well, the, the part of this would be my own experience, but part of it would be the the impact nationally. The sequence of games in 81 on the first Saturday of the tournament when you had a staggered series of... You know lightning in a bottle moments, one of them being number one to Paul losing to St. Joe's at Dayton, which mm-hmm. was a moment that we both observed in person. Uh, but you had, I mean, you had other games as well. You had the US Reed 40 or 50 footer, and there was another game. And the fact that the technology had evolved to that point that allowed NBC. To cut from one moment to the next and you had this succession of bolts of lightning, I mean, that clearly was a series of moments that took the national interest in that tournament to a new level.
2: It was almost like that was the first instance of Twitter. You were actually consuming something as it was happening which up to that point, you you know, you you watched one game pretty much, right? You watched one sporting event at a time, and here they right. are jumping to things as they're unfolding, and that live action just seemed to add the excitement to to it for everybody.
0: And and the thing that in hindsight makes it even more remarkable is that when you think back, once CBS. Had the rights to the tournament starting in '82, there was an extended period of time in which there was a lot of frustration because CBS had a hard time with those look-in type moments, and and you know I know Tim Layden has written about this, and I believe others have too. I mean there were a lot of technical hoops that had to be jumped through for the network to be able to execute that. And and the fact that it happened in NBC's last year and I, and I think CBS has become I mean it's owned the rights to the tournament for so long that you've got multiple generations of college students that just associate this tournament with CBS, and rightly so, Mm -hmm. but when you look back at all the things that NBC did to grow that tournament, including moving the championship game to primetime Monday night in 73, which was only, it was two and a half years after the introduction of Monday Night Football. Right. I mean, that was very early in the period when network executives were beginning to believe that maybe there's an audience... Uh, for primetime sporting events and NBC's commitment to the NCAA tournament in 73 the first championship game on Monday night was an important step in that direction all right well give us give us a
2: moment from your final fours that you're attending in person or any tournament moment for that matter that just jumps out at you for being able to be in there to witness it.
0: Well, Leitner shot uh, not not just the play itself, but the and it was very similar to to the Jalen Sugg shot in the semifinal that put Gonzaga past UCLA, where as the night went along, and it became more and more clear that we were all watching the game being played at an insanely high level, and that this was leading to something that was going to be memorable. We didn't know what it was. And then that evening culminating in in that moment. And, and the thing that I remember that began to reinforce it, you know how sometimes if you're fortunate enough and you're observing a moment like that on deadline where you're just trying to execute the things you need yeah, to do to, to do your job. Yeah, right. You're And braiding. it doesn't... Co- <laughs> it doesn't quite hit you until a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And the little bit later for me was at about 2 a.m. when a bunch of us had gathered in the hospitality room of the hotel in Broad Street in Philadelphia. And it was this long rectangular space and the, the, the refreshments were at one end and the TVs were at the other end. And I remember when the 2 a.m. sports center came on, there were people that were sprinting from the refreshment end of the hospitality room to the TV end of the hospitality room because they didn't want to miss a second of the highlights of this game in this moment.
2: Well, sports writers running away from beer. I mean, think about it.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> including some people that I had never seen run before, <laughs> frankly. Right. Um, so that was one of those moments. Or, for instance, this isn't the tournament, but it's another one of those bolt of lightning moments. Late Sunday afternoon in the the dining room behind the press box at Dodger Stadium which was becoming an auxiliary workroom and we're setting up and people are just chatting and Vin Scully just parenthetically mentions you know the the Gibson home run it's got to be one of the great moments in the history of the World Series and just hearing Vin Scully articulate this matter-of-factly at like 3 or 4 in the afternoon the next day it's like yeah yeah, it's like, yeah, that was one of the great moments in the history of the World Series, even though you know, the Dodgers held serve, right? right? I mean, the home team won game one, but hearing Vin matter-of-factly say that helped frame my thinking, you know, just because there there is this delayed response in in our collective understanding of where what we just saw, whether it was a couple of hours ago or whether it was last night, how it fits into the the history of what we're covering.
2: So you were there for Gibson's Homer to beat the, you know, to beat the A's off Eckersley yes. at the World Series. You're there for Leitner's shot where Duke beats Kentucky in the ninety-two East Regional Final, perhaps the greatest college game ever. When you think about having thirty years of of covering that type of stuff, do you ever just sit down and think what kind of life was that? <laughs> you know.
0: Well, and and to be lucky enough to to have the chance to be in a place where a lot of people are going to be able to see what I do,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: and a place that has the resources to send me to things like that. So to benefit from the resources that the New York Times had. So that I would have a chance to contribute to something like that and go to those events and, and be around enough that initiative could be rewarded. I mean, for instance, and I was thinking about this because the Rams were just in the Super Bowl. The, the last time the Los Angeles Rams were in a Super Bowl, the game was in Pasadena. I was already on the West Coast, so they keep me there.
2: This is January it, 1980 when the January play of 1980,
0: which is 42 years ago, and there were two out of town people keeping track of the Rams that week. That's it. Me and Mike O'Hara from Detroit. Two were two out of town people, <laughs> and now where that comes in handy is that I was assigned to do a story that was going to be, there were going to be twin features in the Monday Monday paper at the start of Super Bowl week. So next week's Monday paper. And and the concept was profiles of the the two most influential players, the the two most important leaders Mm
1: -hmm. in this
0: game. Clearly for the Rams, it's Jack Youngblood who was the Hall of Fame he eventually became a Hall of Fame defensive lineman wasn't he playing on a broken leg too? yes and you're you're way ahead of me The complicating factor was that he had a fracture in a leg he was he intended to play and he was extremely sensitive about the way he was being portrayed he it bothered him that, He was being viewed as this reckless guy who's going to play on a broken leg. That's interesting. And so during the daily availability, there's a small group, two out-of-towners, I'm one of them, and he doesn't want to talk about it. Well, this is a problem because this is the most important aspect of this story. And for totally understandable reasons, he doesn't want to talk about it. Mm. So at the end of the day, the the Rams, this is when the Rams were in the process of moving to Anaheim. And so the Rams complex was a former elementary school. (laughs) The only reason I can tell you that the founder of the Girl Scouts was Juliet Lowe is because the Los Angeles Rams were set up at the Juliet Lowe Elementary School in Anaheim. (laughs) And so at the end of the day, as the sun is going down, it's around five o'clock. It's a little bit chilly. And I am waiting in the parking lot for Jack Youngblood to come out so that I can make my pitch. And the term elevator pitch had not been part of the public lingo, but essentially that's what it was. I remember seeing him emerge and thinking, you got about 15 seconds and I went up to him, I introduced myself, and I said, I, I work for the New York Times, I've been assigned this profile about you because you're the most important leader on this team. And I understand why you're reluctant to talk about your situation, but it's a really important part of your situation. And I was just wondering if you might have a few minutes to talk about it and I completely understand your reluctance. And to my great surprise, he said, what do you need? Really? And we stood behind his pickup in the parking lot of this former elementary school. There's nobody else around. (laughs) And he basically described how the doctors had advised him that, that there was no risk of additional damage it was a question of how much pain he could tolerate, and he wanted to give it a try. And he wasn't being reckless, he wasn't doing anything that he felt would put him in jeopardy. He, he wanted to give it a try. And then he started getting fidgety after about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I figure, well, you know, he's gonna cut this off, and I'm better off than I was 10 minutes ago. And he, say, he turns toward the back of his pickup, and he says, you want a beer? and and he had this cooler in the back of the pickup with beer on ice and I said okay and I didn't have any of it until we were done but I didn't at this point I certainly don't want to be antisocial and so he finished the conversation and I thanked him and that's how my initiative was rewarded and you know, that's something I worry about for this generation because it's almost impossible for that kind of initiative to be a re- rewarded in in that kind of way.
2: Well, I was going to say, I think the lesson of that great story is that you just have to be there. You have to be there. You have right. to try to find a way to get to somewhere that you think you might not be able to be because you just never know. You know. Well,
0: And, and Gay Talese used to refer to it as the art of hanging out. Right, exactly. To, to gain the trust of a person to whatever extent that you could be a fly on the wall. There's one other similar thing that I can share with you that's an example of that. So in the, in the aftermath of the 81 national championship season at Indiana, um, following that period... Ray Tolbert was a senior, so he graduates. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, in in a move that was pretty unusual at the time, leaves after a sophomore year to go Mm -hmm. into the NBA draft. And then that summer, Landon Turner, who was an absolutely essential part of that team, down the stretch and in the tournament, was in a tragic auto accident on his way to Kings Island, and was paralyzed. Right. So Paral, yeah. before the start of the next season, I suggested to Arthur Pincus, who was the editor of the Sunday section, or Monday section, excuse me, to try to do a story about what had happened to this group so soon after winning a national championship. So I make my appointment for my audience with Bob Knight, And it was at eight o'clock in the morning. That was when he was available. So like a lot of us, that's not a time I would have picked. (laughs) Most sports writers are not particularly strong morning people, but hey, that's okay. If he's available, I'm there. So I'm sitting in the outer office at about quarter to eight. He comes in and takes a look at me and says, am I supposed to talk to you? (laughs) And I said, well, I hope so. And he says, okay, just a minute. And he goes into his office and he takes care of a couple of things. I go in, I ask him a couple of preliminary questions about this theme and he leans back in his chair. And I remember him saying, you know, the trouble with you guys, now I am immediately put off because I'm not trying to be one of you guys. I'm (laughs) trying to develop something that's me. Right. So the trouble with you guys is that you're all doing the same story and it's all, woe is me, poor Indiana this, poor Indiana that. And I politely interrupted and because I'm not pleased that he's categorizing me with kind of this trivial approach. And I said, no, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to do a story about a group that achieved at an elite level together. It happens to be a basketball team. And after this elite level achievement, all these different things have happened, some of them very good, some of them very bad, to put the people in that group in a very different place. That's why I'm here, and that's the story that I'm here to do. And at that moment, I figured, you know, if he kicks me out, he kicks me out. From that moment on, he could not have been more kind. Hmm. And so in the course of our conversation, he mentioned that he was that afternoon, he was going to be speaking to a group of trial lawyers in Indianapolis. And so as we're wrapping up, and I was in with him for close to an hour and as we're wrapping up, I said, "By the way, is is there any chance that I could just go listen to you speak to that group this afternoon?" He said, oh, "Why would you want to do that?" And I said, "Well, just out of curiosity. I mean, I know what you say when you talk to us, but like, I have no idea what kind of things you'd be talking about when you talk to a group like that." Right. And he said, "Well, let me think about it. I mean, call the." SID office. Let me let me think about it. So that afternoon, I call the office, and he and, and Tom Miller, who I think was still there at the time, says, um, "Coach says it's okay, and he wants you to meet him at the office. He'll give you a ride." And I said, "Well, I mean, that's very kind, but really, I mean, that's not necessary. I mean, I can I can drive myself." He said, "No, coach said like meet him here. He'll give you a ride." Hmm. So now he's giving me a ride, and he's doing 80, going up 37 from Bloomington to Indianapolis. And I'm clinging to the seat, <laughs> wondering if he has considered the fact that there could be Purdue graduates that are state troopers. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. But he said, before we, when we get into town, um, he said, I, I got a stop to make. Well, no, okay. And before he goes to the Hyatt, which is where this event was, he goes to Methodist Hospital mm. and he walks, he, I'm walking with him. We go in the elevator, we go off a floor where the sign says ICU. We walk right past the nurse's station and he walks me into Landon Turner's hospital room. Wow. And, and this is the part that I know was not an accident and that I'll always be grateful for. He introduced me by name, but not affiliation.
1: Mm.
0: He just said, hey, Landon, say hello to Malcolm Moran, not New York Times. Mm-hmm. Because he had to know, he was letting me be a fly on the wall. And he had to know that if he said New York Times... Landon's gonna be wondering what's going on, and the authenticity of the moment is gone. Right. And he let me watch the by-play between him and Ernie Klein, who was his high school coach at Arsenal Tech in Indianapolis, for about a half an hour. Wow. And they're laughing. Landon had started to grow a mustache, which obviously was a violation of team rules. Yeah. And Knight's saying, like, you were gonna test me now, weren't you? And you know, and they're laughing, and you know, and then he says, I'll see you next week, and we leave. Wow. Now, he didn't have to do that. No. And and that's I don't know what it was that I did when you know, maybe there was something about the sincerity or the conviction that I showed when he put me on the spot, I don't know.
2: Yeah, you challenged him. You stood up for yourself, right? Well, yeah, Yeah. I did. Because I
0: I felt that he was trivializing what I was trying to accomplish, and I wasn't going to be rude, but I was going to hold my ground.
2: Well, I think he respected the fact that you did stand up for yourself, and you separated yourself from being just uh, generalized,
0: you know? And, and, you know, he provided access to a moment that, you know, here we are more than 40 years later, and it's still a memorable thing of, out of all the things I've done. Wow. What a wonderful story. Well, it was the first thing that I did that got into an anthology. The sporting news in those days picked up the best sports stories model that had gone back to the 40s, I think. And, and that was the first thing I did that got into that collection. But, and it wouldn't have if not for that ending.
2: I think it's just a great example of you being there, which is a great lesson for all journalists, young journalists especially. And um, I know in my own career, you were always there for me. There were times when I had questions. I sought advice from people such as yourself. And you were always there. And you were always there for all journalists. Uh, you did so many things behind the scenes and still do for uh, writers and their organizations and things about access, standing up for the rights of a journalist, that I know so many people respect you for that over the years. And that's why I truly say that the students that you're working with today are really blessed to have you... Um, teaching them because they cannot
0: learn from a better sports journalist than Malcolm Morand. Thanks. Thanks, Todd. And, and thank you very much for the kind words. And I always viewed it as kind of passing it on. There were a lot of people, including competitors, that did things to help me, especially early on when I'm trying to figure all this stuff out. And so, you know, that's one of the nicest things about this business, even though there's this competition, there is, to a large extent, this spirit of oneness where people help each other, whether it's a, a little slice of insight or something more substantial. I mean, that's one of the most rewarding things about this, this line of work.
2: It's been great, Malcolm. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on.
3: Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race, and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current